page 1041 of the Bible's next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you used to be slaves to sin. You have come to obey from your hearts the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves to slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. So, yeah. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we uh, ask that you be with us during this time. We thank you for this opportunity to come together as a community, uh, as a family, to hear from your word, uh, open our minds and open our hearts to receive it. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you will work in us, uh, that your word, your living word, may dwell in us and change us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, trying to make sure it's not echoey here, but uh, is anybody out there a fan of Bob Dylan? A couple yes. people, awesome, cool. It was a little bit before my time, but uh, Pastor Mark told me that he had a great song that actually had to do with what we just read um, called Gotta Serve Somebody. I don't know if you've ever heard it or not. Uh, we used to sing some old Bob Dylan songs when I was in Young Life, so I know a little bit, but uh, the song goes a little bit like this. I'm not gonna sing it, don't worry because then I don't think anybody would come back next week. Um, but he says things like, uh, you might like to eat caviar, you might like to eat bread, you might be sleeping on the floor or sleeping in a king-sized bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And he does it in his cool, raspy voice when he sings his guitar, and it's way, way awesome. Uh, but the message, you're going to have to serve somebody. And this might not be a popular message to us, especially here in America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, where we get to be our own masters. Nobody gets to tell us what to do. We get to do whatever we want. But if you use that same kind of logic and you ask somebody, well, what do you want? 
That's the thing that they're serving. Uh, we all serve the things or the people which promise to make us happy. The things that we want, that we think are going to fill that hole that we have in our hearts, that longing, that desire, uh, those things are the things that we serve. Uh, we see this happen a lot when we find ourselves serving money. Uh, we never seem to have enough. We always think that if we had just a little bit more, then we'd, we'd be fine. Then we'd be happy. That would fill the hole and the longing that we feel in our hearts. Or maybe uh, we long for status. We think that's what is going to make us happy. If I just got into that master's program, or if I just got that PhD behind my name, then I'd be happy. Or if I got that promotion, then people would know that I'm good enough, and then that would fill that longing that I feel in my heart. One of the uh, young kids that I work with at the greenhouse told me that if he found a truck full of fidget spinners, he would be so happy. <laughs> that that is what would fill the longing that he has in his heart. Now, these things aren't necessarily bad in themselves, getting a promotion, a degree, money, fidget spinners. Uh, but when these things uh, fill that space in our heart, when we look to them to make us happy, that's when we find ourselves getting in trouble. When we tell ourselves that if I serve this thing, or if I serve this person well, then I will be happy, we end up offering ourselves and giving our hearts to these things in the hope that they will fulfill what we want. We give ourselves to them in the hope that they will make us happy. We end up serving them, and we find ourselves under their control. So what does this have to do with sin? In the verse that we read in the passage, sin is mentioned over 10 times in just 11 verses. Lucky me, I got stuck with the <laughs> sin passage of Romans. Sweet, just what I wanted. Uh, but So for us to really understand what Paul is talking about, when he's talking about being slaves to sin, it would be good for us to check out what is sin. What does that mean? Uh, and St. Augustine talks about sin as disordered desire. It's when our hearts are out of whack. When we want the wrong things. We want the right things, but at the wrong time. Because our hearts were made with an infinite capacity to love. Our hearts are a deep, deep well of desire that can only be filled when we're in relationship with God. But sin is when we try to fill that deep longing and that deep desire with lesser things, with things that are short-lived, things that are small, things that are uh, fainting. It's like we would go to a deep, deep well and we're trying to fill it with just a water bottle or maybe another water bottle. And we don't get anywhere close. This kind of goes against how I used to think of sin, and maybe you too. I used to always think that sin was doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, breaking the rules. That's what sin was. Sin had to do with my actions. But Augustine says that it goes deeper than that. It says that sin has to do with the longings and the desires behind those actions. It's not just what you do with your body. It's what's going on with your heart. That's where we find what sin really is. It has to do with wanting the wrong things. And we see this happen all the time uh, in our lives and in the lives of other people around us. When we want that overtime paycheck, and so we stay working late, when we want that more than we want to spend time with our family or with uh, people that we're in relationship with, we call that greed. It's a disordered desire. We're wanting something less more than we want something that's worth more. When we find ourselves in an argument and we want to be right more than we want to be in a healthy relationship with the person we're arguing with. We call that pride. 
because we want to be right more than we want to be reconciled. We find ourselves wanting to have a cheap hookup with a Tinder date more than we want to have a deep and meaningful, intimate relationship with someone. We call that lust, because we're wanting sex more than what we want a meaningful relationship. We're wanting lesser things more than we want greater things. And so this is where we find ourselves uh, enslaved to these things. When we offer ourselves to these lesser things, the more control they have over us. We end up becoming slaves to our disordered desires. And I think someone who demonstrates this really well is uh, J.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. He talks about, he, he demonstrates what it's like to be under the, uh, the captivity of something because of our desires. Throughout these books and these movies, we see characters become overcome with desire for the ring, this one special ring. And the ring is able to work its way into the hearts of everyone who sees it, who touches it, who's even in the same room as it, so that their only desire is to possess it and to keep it. There's this great scene in the first movie where Bilbo is supposed to leave the ring behind for Frodo. And as he's going, uh, he, he ends up taking it with him, but Gandalf stops him and says, aren't you forgetting something? And out of his desire to keep the ring, he lashes out at his friend, at his mentor Gandalf, and says, you're just trying to keep it for yourself. It drove him to lash out against the people that loved him and actually cared for him. And as he's about to leave and he holds out his hand to drop it, as he slowly turns his hand, you actually see the ring sort of cling to him. Like it doesn't want to let him out of its control. As he's trying to let go of it, it's clinging to him, trying to maintain its power over him before eventually it falls to the floor. And maybe you know what that's like, trying to let go of something, but you feel it clinging on to you, trying to keep you under its control. When you're trying to let go of something that's precious to you, sometimes it's hard for us to, to release ourselves from its control. Or maybe you find yourself unable to let go, in which case, Instead of feeling like Bilbo, maybe you feel a little bit more like another character, Gollum, who is so completely enslaved and trapped by his desire for the ring that he's a complete shadow of what he used to be and is completely under its control. We see this a lot with addictions. We try to let these things go, but we are completely powerless. I know a lot of uh, young men that I work with struggle with pornography and talk about how hard it is to let go of those addictions, how it's something that just seems to cling to them. And instead of being able to let it go, they keep it secret. They don't let anybody know about it. And they run away into isolation so that nobody knows about this shameful thing. Or maybe you know what it's like to uh, have this really strong impulse to um, be overprotective of your kids. Maybe you're trying to let them go. You're trying to let them become their own people. But then when you see them make just a small mistake, you find this overwhelming impulse to come in and fix everything. You're under the control of these impulses. And instead of being free, we find ourselves slaves to these things which sit in the thrones of our heart, our disordered desires, the things that we want the most. We put them in the thrones of our heart and we do whatever they tell us to do. And it's in this place that Paul asks, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things lead to death. And I think they even go a little bit further. I think they lead to loneliness and isolation. We see this in Gollum. When he had the ring, he was driven away 
and hid away with it in the mountains for like a hundred years because he didn't want anybody to try to take it away from him. Rather than be a part of a community, he drove away into isolation and loneliness so that he could be with the thing that mattered most to him. And sometimes we mistake this isolation as independence. We think that we're better off on our own, that we are stronger on our own, and that's how we're meant to be as individuals living on our own. When in reality, we're only separating ourselves from the community that gives us life, and we end up being controlled more by the things that we find ourselves alone with. But even in all of this, in our captivity to sin and our slavery to our disordered desires, God sees us and he acts. God finds us in this state of captivity and he buys us our freedom. This is the good news of what we see in Jesus. We are the lost sheep, isolated, alone, away from the flock, and God comes to bring us back. We are the prodigal son, trying to find happiness in all sorts of different desires and things that we think will lead to good, but actually lead to destruction. And God is the father who runs out and brings us home. We are slaves to cruel masters, but God is the one who buys us and sets us free. Paul writes that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to Christ. I think it's interesting that he doesn't just drop the slave name there. He doesn't say you've been set free from sin and now you're free in Christ, which he does say later, but he says you've become slaves to Christ. And I say, why is he keeping the slave analogy? Why doesn't he just drop that altogether? Because in our minds, and especially when I was trying to think of this, my understanding of slavery has to do with uh, the history of slavery in the United States. That's my understanding of slavery. And again, when I was reading this, I was like, boy, why do I have to get this text? As the white guy having to preach about slavery, like, every time I talk about slavery, we get this little thing of white guilt, and it's like, oh boy, not what I want to go into here. But slavery during the time of Paul was very different than the slavery that we learn about in our U.S. history classes. The Greek word that he uses here for slave is doulos, which is a person who has offered themselves into slavery somebody who is offering their service to another person. And people would do this all the time. If they were in debt to somebody, they could pay it off by offering themselves as slaves to be in bondage to them for a couple years to pay off their debt. If they found themselves without work or in a hard time, they would be able to offer themselves as slaves to somebody in order to provide food and shelter and to find a way of living. Most of these people that Paul was referring to were household slaves. A lot of them were educated and would serve as teachers for the children in the slaves' household. Many of them would serve as cooks, uh, doing the cleaning, doing the household work. And actually very few were doing the hard labor out in the fields and doing things like that. And almost two-thirds of the people in the time of the Roman Empire when Paul was writing this had either been in slavery or were in slavery. So it was an incredibly common thing throughout their community. So when Paul is writing to the Romans and uses this analogy of slavery, it actually makes a ton of sense to them because they're like, oh yeah, I used to be a slave. Or I know my cousin, he's a slave right now to this person. It's something that was very common to them and they were all able to understand it. So for us, it might be a little bit different. So when I read this, I'm like, why the heck is he still on this slavery thing? Like, that's a bad thing. We don't want to be slaves to Christ. When we're slaves to people, they're our master and that's a bad thing. But when Paul is writing this to them, it makes perfect sense. So to continue the slave analogy, 
It's as if we have offered ourselves to sin. We have offered ourselves to them in the hope of finding happiness. But we found out that sin is a cruel master. Sin does not give us what we want. It keeps dangling our freedom and our desires in front of us, always one step out of reach. And God sees us in this bondage to a cruel master, and he can't take it anymore. And so he pays the price to set us free. As Paul says later on in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says that you are not your own, but you have been bought with a price. And what is that price? God paid the life of his own son so that we could be free. Because only a life can pay for a life. And our freedom was purchased when God sent his son Jesus to give up his life in our stead. He died the death that we owed to sin so that we could freely receive the life that he was giving to us. There's a version of Amazing Grace that says, My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. I think that's what amazing grace is. That while we were in debt and in bondage to a cruel master of sin, God gave his only son in our place to pay the price to set us free. So when Paul says that now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit that you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. And when Paul's writing this, I think he's doing an amazing job of following Jesus' line of teaching, which works with opposites and parallels. Uh, some people call Jesus somebody who would teach about the upside-down kingdom. Jesus taught us that if you want to be first, you have to be last. That if you want to be great, you must make yourself the least of these. You need to be humble. And he says that if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. And so here Paul is saying that if you want to be free, you need to make yourself a slave. Just like Jesus used death to give us life, Paul is saying that God is using slavery to bring us freedom. This is how the gospel works. As slaves in God's house, we find the freedom to live how we were meant to live. If sin is the result of a disordered heart, a heart that wants the wrong things, it's like God begins to reorder our heart so that we will be free to desire the things which lead to life. In our call to confession, we just read Psalm 51, which said, The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. We give God our heart with all of its disordered desires to be broken down so that God can put it back together in the way that it's supposed to be. So that we don't long for lesser things anymore, but we long for the one thing that can actually fill that deep well of desire within us. It's as if our hearts were like a broken bike wheel, bent out of shape. If anybody tried to ride it, they wouldn't be free to ride it the way that it's meant to be. It would always veer off to one side or another. And so God takes our hearts, he takes that bike wheel, and he tightens a spoke here, and he loosens a spoke there, gradually bending it back into the way that it's supposed to be, so that it can be ridden in the way that it's supposed to be, and that whoever's riding it is free to go where they're supposed to go. Or imagine a compass needle that every time you look at it is pointing in a different direction. That wouldn't be a very useful compass, would it? You would get lost quicker than, than you would even realize. But God takes our heart and he reorients it. He remagnetizes the needle on that compass so that it always points in the right direction. So that it always points due north. And it points us into relationship with him. 
But our old habits can die hard. If we've lived our entire lives in bondage to sin, when we're set free, sometimes we don't know what it's like to live in that freedom. And we go back to our old habits because that's what we know and that's what's comforting. Uh, and another book series uh, that I think displays this really well uh, is in Harry Potter. Dobby, the house elf, was a slave to cruel masters, the Malfoys. He had to do whatever he told them, and whenever he disobeyed, he had to slam his fingers in a drawer or bang his head with a pot, and uh, he was under their control. But when he was given freedom, he dove into it, and he had to kind of unlearn those old habits. We see another house elf in these books named Winky, who takes a different approach. In one of her uh, interactions with Harry Potter, she says, House elves are not supposed to have fun, Harry. House elves do what they are told. And when she is set free, she goes into a state of depression because she didn't want to be free from her master. She didn't know what it meant to have freedom. She was crying and wanted to go back to her old master because that's all she had ever known. And sometimes we might feel that way too. We don't know what to do with this freedom that we find in Christ. And we want to just go back to our old master, to the ways where things felt like we had it under control and it's going back to what we're used to. It can take us a long time for us to learn what freedom really is. It took Winky three Harry Potter books to learn it. And those are, those are long books, so that's a long time. Because first we need to unlearn what it means to follow our old masters. And then God reteaches us what it means to be free in him. So what does this freedom look like? It looks like a heart that is set right. A heart that desires what God intends for us to desire. It's a heart that prays, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. So instead of being a slave to keeping and hoarding money, we are now free to give it away generously. We are no longer under its control and we can give it away however we please. Instead of being a slave to the spotlight and always needing to have the attention on us, we're now free to be humble. We're free to give that glory to God, to shine our light where it belongs. We used to be slaves to a master who always demanded more and more, but now we have been set free, and we live in a relationship with a God who always gives more and more than we could ever comprehend. And I want to end this uh, with a meditation from Julian of Norwich, uh, who is like a medieval mystic. Some, but she had some really cool stuff. Um, so I'll just read this, and then, then we'll pray. Said, my own sin will not hinder the working of God's goodness. As long as we are in this life and find ourselves foolishly dwelling on sinfulness, our God tenderly touches us and joyfully calls us, saying, let all your love be me, my child. Turn to me. I am everything you need. Enjoy me and your liberation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for paying the price for our freedom. For our freedom. When we were slaves to cruel masters, when we were unable to control ourselves, when our hearts were all bent out of shape, and when we desired lesser things, you came and you saved us. Lord, please continue to rework our hearts. May we desire you above all. May we put you in the thrones of our heart, that we would live in the freedom that you have called us to. Amen.